I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to sit down and there's no other reason than I'm, I've been in a little bit of pain the last couple days. Um, been trying to figure this out for about a year and no answers yet, but that's okay. We'll get there. It just helps me if I move less. So <laughs> moving less, I will. Um, for those of you who may be thinking it's a little disrespectful to sit down, the Orthodox would agree with you. Uh, they just recently put chairs in their sanctuaries. They didn't think that you could um, actually worship if you sat down, if you got too comfortable. Uh, so a later development, I don't know why we're talking about this, later development for them were these kind of like tall stools with arms on them, and they were reserved just for like the, the, the elderly so that they could go to the side and like lean on something because their services are long, right? They're like four hours. So we were in Israel uh, <laughs> a little over a month ago, and they do have some chairs in there, mostly for like the tourists who want to come in and sit down. Somebody in our group sits and I mean, not only is it like, don't get too comfortable, you can't worship God, but like this move right here is like, this, this uh, <laughs> Orthodox priest walked by somebody in our group sitting like this and slapped his leg. And he says, don't cross your legs in the house of God. <laughs> Incredible. And here we are, all sitting down. Legs crossed. Get comfortable. We might be here a while. Um, I also have an, a, a slight confession to make today. Uh, I wasn't supposed to preach. Um, if you've been at Sanctuary now for a while, you know we like a, a variety of voices speaking into our context, but then if you've only been here for the last like six weeks, it's just been me, um, mostly because our other pastors are cowards. Um, <laughs> They're actually in really wonderful seasons of life where they just get to say no to things, and they've said no. Uh, Father Chris was uh, scheduled for this week, and he texts me Monday, and uh, all of you know, I, I assume by now, that Father Chris has been dealing with some health issues, and uh, we've been praying for you, um, and we're glad that you're here today. It's good to see you. But he left me to preach today. Uh, another thing we're celebrating that we should talk about, man, maybe I should sit down more often. I feel real chatty this morning. Uh, Bishop Ed, as of Thursday, is now the Right Reverend Dr. Ed Gunger. Some of you remember seven years ago when he went on his sabbatical to start this process. <laughs> and here we are at the other end of it. That's exciting. So today is Palm Sunday. And like I said, uh, I was not supposed to preach. And so what I did was I stole a sermon from someone else. And uh, that someone else was Father Chris. And then I realized as I was going through some notes that this was a sermon Father Chris gave, but his wife, Julie, wrote. So if you have any issues with what happens today, uh, don't come to me, don't go to Father Chris. You can go straight to Julie Green and air all of your grievances today. There's always somebody else 
to blame. So today begins what we know as Holy Week. And all of Holy Week announces that God comes to us when we won't come to God. The whole of the gospel is this story. Not about our journeying toward God, but about God coming close to us. It's easy for us to lose touch with this reality, that it is God who comes close to us, not so much about our journeying toward God. Paul, in this book of Philippians, says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which leaves us with the impression that working out our salvation is our responsibility, it's our work, it's the job, the task that we have. But immediately, Paul goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What Paul's suggesting is that even when we do move toward God, and there are seasons in our lives where we do pursue and move toward God, it's God who is strengthening us. It's God who is nudging us toward God, toward his own life. God is enabling our willing and our working. Our message as Christians, as we retell the gospel in our own lives, is not that you should go to God, but that God has come to us. If you've never read this book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, it's kind of famous, at least you've heard about it. My godfather gave me a copy of Pilgrim's Progress when I was eight. Um, Don't give it to your eight-year-old, I can say that. But it's this kind of Christian classic, and it's about this, this pilgrim, meaning you and me, who's on a journey carrying this large burden in search of God, in search of this destination. And so the image that it sets up for us is to think that we are the burdened ones. We are the ones who are carrying this weight, who have to make our way. We have to journey to the cross so that there we can finally set our burdens down. And we face all kinds of trials and temptations until at last we come to the cross and then we're free. This is the image that a book like The Pilgrim's Progress gives to us. And it's the image of our relationship with God that we have imagined for ourselves. And there's some truth to this in context, but in terms of the Christian life, it's almost the exact opposite. Yes, we are burdened. We do carry a weight of sorts, but we could never make our way to the cross on our own. We can never set out on this journey on our own merit or on our own strength. Remember, it's God who is enabling our willing and our working. And so Christ comes to us is the gospel story. Christ comes to us and unburdens us, bears those burdens with us and for us, dies and is buried with those burdens, and then leaves those burdens buried as he is resurrected. I am not the pilgrim finding God. God is the one who has gone into the far country in search of me, in search of you. So the Christian life is not about me journeying toward God, but about God journeying to me. It's not about my knowing God, but about God knowing me. Again, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 
This is 4 verse 9. He has this line. He says, you know God. And then he almost stops himself. And he says, better yet are known by God. Our knowing is good, but the better thing is that we are known by God. The root of the matter isn't that I know God or that I love God. The root of the matter is that God knows me, that God loves me, that God lays claim of me. So the first and the most important part of Palm Sunday, as we imagine this triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, is that this is the God who has journeyed and come to us. He has made his way to us today. If you've ever read, we're going to talk about a couple of books. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, there's this moment when the children are being bullied on this playground. And in that moment, they call out for Aslan. They call out for him to come and to help them. And immediately they find themselves in Narnia with Aslan. And they say to him, thank you for hearing us when we called to you. And Aslan, who's the the God figure, the Christ figure in these stories, he replies to them, he says, oh, my child, you could not have called to me if I had not called for you first. This is typically our experience with God. We find ourselves in trouble, and so we call out to God. But the deeper truth, the deeper reality is that God has already called out to us God has already laid claim of us as those who he loves, which makes our calling out to him possible. This is what Paul means when he says that God enables our willing and our working. God is coming to us. Wherever you are, God is on his way. God will find you. God will take your burdens and God will bury them. This is the gospel And of course, we wonder, why does God do this for us? And of course, the answer is it's because God loves us. And this should be obvious to us, but we sing and we preach and we talk about God's love so much all the time that the danger is that the idea of God's love becomes a kind of cliche for us. We've made the idea of God's love something shallow, so it's difficult for us to get our hearts and our minds around what this means for us. One of the hymns that we sing here and a lot of church communities around the country sing around the world is Stuart Townend's How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's a beautiful song, but I have an issue with it, as you can imagine. We always got an issue with something. And here's the line that I can never really get behind. It says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son, and here it is, to make a wretch his treasure. In some ways, the only way that we have learned and know how to talk about God's love, about the depth and the breadth and the vastness of God's love, has been to emphasize our unworthiness of that love to help us make sense of it, to help us get our heads around it and to feel it in our hearts, to realize the depth of God's love, the way that we've made sense is to emphasize not how incredible God's love is, but to emphasize the ways in which we are unworthy of that love, that we are wretches, that we don't deserve this love that God gives to us. 
And so the good news becomes that God's love has overcome our unlovability. (laughs) And then we make our state, our human nature, wretched, as the song says, in order to emphasize the power of God's love. In one sense, again, it's true. Sin does make a wretch out of all of us. But it's not true that our state, that our humanity, the condition of our lives makes us unworthy of God. We are not, as human beings, unworthy of God. God looks at us and sees that our sins are unworthy of us. Imagine for a second, you see a man on the street. And some of you even walking in here today didn't have to imagine this. We see these men and these women on the corners of Tulsa. And now imagine that that man is drunk and filthy. He's unbathed. He's starving. Our natural response would be one of disgust, would be to recoil away from this person to recoil from from the smell and the sight, to skirt around him in some way, keep our window rolled up. But if that man were your father, if that man were your brother or your son, you wouldn't respond to him in the same way. You wouldn't recoil away from him in the same way. You would still see what you see and you would still smell what you smell, but there is a love, a connection, a relationship that overcomes all of those conditions so that our very bodies respond in different ways. To say it another way, when my kids are sick and they're eight, three, and one, and so pandemic was nothing new. We constantly live in the plague. When my kids are sick, there's something about it that is endearing to me. There's something when I see them sick that this well of compassion rises up in me and I actually want to move toward them. I want to take care of them. My heart breaks for them just a little bit. Before COVID taught us more about what it means to be sick, I used to lay next to them in their beds and just let their breath touch my face and now I'm like, no, that's gross. Now, again, when my kids are sick, I find it endearing. When your kids are at my house and they're sick, I don't find it endearing. I get nervous. But if it's my kids, there is this care, there's this movement toward them that all of the germs and the runny noses and the coughs could never prevent. In some way, this is God's posture toward us. As his children, we are his love. And so God comes to us delighting in us, delighting in who we are, not disgusted by us, not in spite of us, not holding his nose as he comes close. He comes to us because he just can't help himself. In the Gospels, Jesus is often moved by compassion to come near to those that other people are disgusted by. What's moving him? What's animating him? These are his people. These are his friends. These are his children. He can't not respond to them or to us in any other way. God loves us 
again, not in spite of himself, but because of who we are and who he is. And here's where I wanna spend the bulk of today. Something that's hard for us to hear, but I think we need to hear. That God not only loves us, God not only comes to us, but when God comes to us because he loves us, he comes to us as one who wants to serve us. Philippians 2, our epistle for today. Paul's making this argument. He's asking the churches to care for one another. And he says this, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, by having the same mind, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. He says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. This isn't an unfamiliar passage to us. And typically when we read this, we we kind of read it as a story in two parts. First, that Jesus gives up his place, gives up his position of authority, his position of privilege, by living this humiliating life that ends in the most disgraceful death imaginable, by being crucified. And then God, the second act of this story, sees Jesus' faithfulness, even in the face of that humiliation, and then raises him back, exalts him again to that place of power and privilege and authority. But that's not what we just read. That's not what the text actually says to us. What's happening here is we tend to impose on the text what we think it means to be God in relation to human beings. This is what we think it means to be God in relationship to creation. We assume that creation is empty and humiliated in relation to God. But what Paul is telling us and the gospel show us is that God doesn't have to make himself less to become all that we are. As Bonhoeffer famously said, the incarnation is not a humiliation for God. God doesn't have to give up being himself to become like you and me. It's not humiliating for God to become human, for God to take on flesh. And it's not a matter of Taking on humanity makes God less, but by taking on flesh, God makes humanity more. This is what we see in the Gospels. God becomes human so that humanity might become like God. 
God is not ashamed to be one of us. As the writer of Hebrews says, God is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. God is not humiliated. Instead, the text says that he empties himself, which doesn't mean that he makes himself less. It means that he pours the fullness of himself into the person of Jesus. Emptying himself isn't about God ceasing to be himself, but pouring out the fullness of who he is into humanity. And the text says, not only is he found in human form, now that he has emptied himself into humanity, but he comes first in the form of a slave. And then he humbles himself unto death, even death on a cross. This means that God's life, the life that God lives, lived humanly, it can only be revealed to us in the life of servanthood, in the life of a slave. When God takes on flesh and becomes human and dwells among us, he dwells among us as one who serves us. We know slavery for the evil that it is. It's the most grave injustice. And at the heart of that injustice, our understanding of it is that it is humiliating. It is a kind of shame, making others feel less than human. And what Paul is showing us is that Jesus, in no way can he express the fullness of the life of God in our world without taking the form of what we have subjugated, of what we have made less than. To descend into the depths of our humanity means that it's not enough for Jesus to be human, but to be a human who serves us. We are the ones who created a world in which those who are enslaved are humiliated. And Jesus is insisting that by taking on that role, that no, you can't actually do this to human beings and strip them of their dignity. Because even I, even God who has descended and become human, I go to those depths. Jesus says, what I'm going to reveal is that even those you humiliate are not humiliating for me. This is why we have to be watchful about how we respond when certain people show up in our life. I think part of what needs to be formed in us, cultivated in us, is what some theologians have called a theology of disgust. A theology of disgust is one that forces us to consider not only our own embodiment and our own worth, but the reality that everyone else exists as embodied beings created in the image of God. So when we find ourselves recoiling from a person or a group of people, whether it's the man or the woman on the corner struggling with homelessness, or someone from some opposing political party, or someone from the LGBTQ community, or somebody of a different race or a different ethnicity, whoever the people are in our lives that cause us to recoil in response, we need a theology that teaches us to delight in them rather than be disgusted by them. Why? Because God does. Because God comes into the messiness of our humanity and is not disgusted by even the most disgusting things we do. 
God delights in us, loves us. Again, God does not see us as unworthy of his love. He sees our sin as unworthy of us. God is not afraid to be a slave among slaves because no matter what we do to them, beat them, starve them, humiliate them, they are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and they bear the image of God. God comes among us as one who serves us. And first, it's not just to dignify those that that we have humiliated. That is part of it but because of God's relationship to us is as the one who serves. This is how God knows us. This is how God relates to us as the one who serves us. Again, this is going to hit our ear in ways that are uncomfortable. Because if you're anything like me, you've probably thought about God's lordship and God's authority as someone who has power over someone else. And when it comes to God, we've considered his lordship as making commands and demands on us and our lives. And then we believe that God judges us based on whether we live up to or whether we obey those commands. This is how we have understood lordship to work. But when God in Christ lived among us, it looks much different Remember Jesus' words, I am among you like one who is a slave. And remember when Jesus says this, it's in the context of table service, pointing out that there are those who sit at the head of the table and there are those who sit around the table, at the foot of the table, and then there are those who serve those who are sitting at the table. He asks while they're at the table, who is the greatest Well, of course, the one at the head of the table. But he says, I am the one who serves. We have created these images where God is at the head of the table and we are serving God. This is the image that we've created in our dynamic of how we relate to God and who he is. But the gospel, the good news, is not that you are to serve God. (laughs) That sounds silly. But it's true. The gospel is that God has come and is the one who serves you. I am among you as the one who serves. Don't worry, it's only going to get worse from here. Again, Julie's going to be at the info desk after service. Paul, in his letter to the church, talks about how to relate to one another, and he tells them to consider everyone better than yourself. I'm not sure that our therapists in the room would agree with this. And then to make it worse, Paul says, how do you consider everyone else as better than yourself? By doing this, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. Meaning what? Meaning that God considers you better than he considers himself. We imagine a God ultimately who benefits from our relationship to us. As if God needs workers to get done everything that God needs to do. And so we serve God in order to give God something that God couldn't get for himself. This is what we mean when we say we do not really serve God. God does not need us to serve him. 
What the life of Jesus shows us is that God's relationship to us doesn't benefit him in any way. God is not benefited by his love for us. God's life is not enriched because of us, made better because of us. God's relationship to us is that we are the ones that are changed. We are the ones who are invited to the table where Christ serves us. When we come to this table every week, Christ is the one who makes himself available to us on that table. Christ serves us, his own flesh, his own body and blood and the bread and the wine. God's relationship to us will miss it. We'll miss out on what God has for us when we're too busy trying to serve God and all the while God is there wanting to serve us. A couple examples of this. We see this pop up at Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus shows up and he comes to get baptized and John the Baptist responds. He says, I'm not worthy to do that. I can't do that. I, I can't let you serve me in that way. It's a false kind of piety. We see this in our preachers all the time. People that you've heard, maybe some that you've complimented, and you've probably heard this in response. It was all God. <laughs> Trust me, if this was all God, it would be a lot better than it is right now. <laughs> That's why if you compliment me, I'm just going to say thank you, <laughs> because it's a lot of work. And you know what? This is the best I can do. We see this again when Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet. And Jesus gets to him, and he says, you will never wash my feet. You will never do that for me. You will never serve me in that way. Something in us wants to take care of God, but God is trying to take care of us. Interesting, in both of these stories, in John the Baptist and in Peter's story, it's immediately after these moments of resisting the God who wants to serve us that they have a kind of crisis of faith. In the days after Jesus' baptism, John sends some of his disciples to Jesus, and do you remember what he sent them to ask him? Are you really the one? John the Baptist had been prophesying about this moment, about this person who is coming. And when he shows up and realizes that this God wants to serve him, it causes a crisis of faith in John the Baptist. Are you really the one? And then as we'll recount later this week, Peter in this moment where he says, no, 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 you will never wash my feet. It's just moments later that he's in the courtyard denying Jesus altogether. Here's the point. If your instinct is to do for God, you'll never be able to receive from God what God wants to give you. And if that's the point, here's the hard truth of it. Our instinct to do isn't even born out of a love for God or a love of our neighbor, but it's out of a desire to be in control of our own lives. We think that if we serve a God who is the most powerful, then I'll be in cahoots, I'll be in good with the one who has all the power to make of my life what I want it to be. That's not the life of dependence that God invites us into. 
Now, one clarifying point. Just because God wants to serve us doesn't mean that God inflicts us in any way so that we'll finally let God do for us what we haven't let God do. God does not bring bad things into your life in order to care for you in that distress. That is sick. That's maniacal. But we've said things like this all the time. That someone's struggling, we say, well, at least you get to depend on God. God does not create the conditions of our suffering in order to relieve our suffering. God does not rig the game so that we need God. Again, I may find it endearing to care for my kids when they're sick, but I don't make them sick in order to care for them. The condition that we live in is one in which we can live a life that is free of God insofar as we imagine that that's possible, but it's never the life of freedom that God really wants to give us. This is what God is inviting us into by letting him serve us. God does not withhold that life from us so much as we can't receive that life from God so much as we refuse to let God do the work God wants to do. And at the same time, God is not the kind of servant who just does what we want when we want it. If you've ever paid attention to some of the the trials of the Nazis that come out after World War II, in almost every case, every soldier, every officer who committed terrible, terrible atrocities, they all said the same thing. I was just obeying orders. I was just doing what I was told to do. God is not that kind of servant. God is not the one who just does what we tell him to do. That's not what we mean when we say God wants to serve us. God is the kind of servant like the Good Samaritan who has found you, has come near to you on the road in your brokenness. God is the Samaritan who doesn't He doesn't do what he's told, and he doesn't even ask for permission. (laughs) He's the kind of servant who cares for you without you even asking for God to care for you. The Samaritan doesn't ask, do you want me to take you to the inn? The Samaritan doesn't ask, would you like me to pour this oil and this wine and clean your wound? The Samaritan doesn't ask, would you like me to pay this innkeeper to take care of you? He just does it. He just picks him up and brings him to the place where he can be healed. He just pours in the oil and the wine. He just pays generously and extravagantly for the care of this person. He just does it. And God serves us like that, finding us in our brokenness and doing what is necessary to make us whole. In the same way, our relationship cannot be bound, our understanding of God cannot be bound to what God has done for us. As we read in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is coming into the city, it says that they began to praise God joyfully. Why? For all of the works and deeds of power that they had seen. That that was the impulse, that was the thing that rose up in them, was praise. Why? Because they'd seen God's power. Their response to Jesus isn't a response to his love. It's a response to the miracles that they've seen. 
And if what comes out of you is praise only when you see God's acts of power in your life, those are the conditions. That's how you go from shouting Hosanna to crying crucify him in just a few more days because we're attracted to the power and to the miracles and not to the servant. What we celebrate is not God's power. What we celebrate is God's unending compassion and mercy and his patience with us. Remember, the text says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we are dying in the road, God comes and binds our wounds. I'm going to close with our Old Testament text for today. This is Isaiah 50. And this is read as a prophecy about Jesus. And we'll see why here in just a second. Isaiah 50, beginning in verse six, says, I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. The kind of power that Jesus embodies, the kind of servanthood, lordship that God wields. It's not the power to smite our enemies. It's not the power to destroy those who would oppose us as much as we wish that's what God's power and lordship looked like. The power that Jesus gives, the power that he embodies and examples and the power that he leaves us with is the power to take it all. Is the part, part of the problem of serving God is that we want to serve a God who makes sure that no one ever spits in our face, to make sure no one ever rips out our beards or slaps our cheeks. But the God who serves us, the God of the gospel says, I want to make it so that even if people spit in your face, you're not disgraced, you're not humiliated, Jesus, unfortunately, won't keep you from having your back struck or your beard pulled. He didn't do it for himself. He didn't do it for for his disciples. He didn't do it for the apostles. He didn't do it for the saints. And I have good news for you. He's not going to do it for you or for me. People will curse you and revile you and try to shame you. They will try to misunderstand you, even on purpose, sometimes. But if Jesus is alive in you, if Jesus really has come close to you, if Jesus has been given room to serve you in the way that he wants to serve you, none of that will matter because they can't disgrace you or put you to shame. And Jesus will help you take it. And take it in such a way that even as they are reviling you, even as they are cursing you and spitting at you, it happens in such a way that it reveals their inhumanity and how they're treating you. So today, don't celebrate because God can overthrow your enemies. God doesn't come riding 
the horse of war, he comes riding the donkey of peace. Celebrate that the God who is alive in you can love your enemies through you. That the one who came and served us can enable and empower us to serve one another.